unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives. A battle of personalities. Welcome to Grant Damasha, a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace in the Hindustan Times. I'm your host, Milan Beshnov. India's nuclear program is often conceived as an inward-looking endeavor of secretive technocrats and scientists. But a new book by the scholar Joitha Sarkar, Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War, challenges this conventional wisdom, narrating a global story of India's nuclear program during its first four decades. It's a story about nuclear ambiguity, Cold War geopolitics, territorial ambition, and visionary engineers and scientists. Joitha is a senior lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow and the founding director of the Global Decolonization Initiative. I'm pleased to welcome her to the podcast for the very first time. Joitha, thanks for coming on the show and congrats on the book. Thank you very much, Melan. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. So I want to go to the first couple of pages in your book. And you have this uh, line, which I just want to quote, where you say, the leaders of India's nuclear program saw in nuclear fission the possibility to augment geopolitical goals of the territorial state, as well as the techno-political goals of the developmental state, leading to a large dual-use enterprise simultaneously serving military and civilian ends, right? I mean, this is sort of one of the big picture ideas of your book. Uh, I wonder if you could begin maybe by telling us a bit about this sort of small group of elite scientists and engineers who were proximate to political power, right? Who were they? What what shaped their thinking uh, that, you know, nuclear technology was intrinsically associated with both developing as well as securing the nation? Absolutely. I think that's a terrific question to begin the conversation about the book. Um, I find in my book that, you know, when we think about India's nuclear program, uh, we think about big ideas, technologies, and all of that are there in my book. But I think individuals are really at the core of it. And so uh, this, this, this small group of scientists and engineers, most of us are familiar with uh, Homi Bhava being called the father of India's nuclear program. Uh, he obviously plays a very important role at the beginning uh, of the program, uh, but as does Vikram Sarabhai, uh, who is also called India's father of India's space program. But I find that there are other actors who don't get as much attention in the historiography, if you will, and that is people like uh, uh, S. Patnagar, for example, uh, who was, you know, who was was part of the Indian government, but also uh, that is through CSIR, uh, but also part of the Atomic Energy Commission, the three-member group at the very beginning. Uh, so I find that that there is this core body of scientists. Uh, most of them are physicists and chemists, and then later on we also see a lot of engineers being at the helm, um, thinking about you know Homi Sethna later. Um, and I find these these scientists from the very beginning, even before the moment of formal decolonization of August forty seven, even before that, that they're thinking about nuclear technologies and and the massive promise that it can bring. Um, obviously, uh, this is happening, you know, 46, 47, and uh, the Manhattan Project is no longer a secret uh, because of the atomic bombings of, of Japan. Uh, and so they're, they're thinking about the vast potential that these technologies, these nuclear technologies can bring in. And, and their th- thinking process is really about how India can 
leapfrog or catch up with the rest of the world and get out of this economic backwardness brought about by the multiple centuries of British colonialism. You know, Nehru has a very uh, larger-than-life role, as he as he did in, in so many domains, right? Uh, for him, you note that, you know, large-scale government investment in scientific institutions was the way forward for India, right? You talk about how his scientific temper was absolutely crucial in understanding India's nuclear evolution. So I guess the question I'd like to ask you is, you know, what was his relationship like with this small coterie of technocrats, engineers, scientists that you've just been speaking about? Very positive. Um, and, and that was not by, by accident. That is, you know, uh, he, he, was, uh, he, he, he was the president of the Indian Science Congress. Uh, so one of the quotes I have uh, at the beginning of my book, I think it's somewhere in the introduction, most likely, that he's talking about atomic energy has this vast potential that it can do so much. And, and he's making that speech in front of a body of, 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 of scientists. And this is, uh, this is before independence. Um, and uh, he, he took a very, it was, it was not just, uh, it was not just ideational. He was very much interested in the government supporting big science because big science will bring about economic development and economic modernity that lack of science cannot. So he, he was, uh, so the scientific temper and Nehru is something that, you know, I think people growing up in India have read in their textbooks. But I find that, you know, this is one thing to say that this is ideational and this temper of the scientific um, human being. But on the other hand, there are these very material dimension of what Nehru is trying to do that he, he gives, he, he, uh, there are some quotes I have in the book about Nehru uh, going to Bombay and discussing that, you know, how the future Indian government will promote uh, applied science uh, through funding, right? So he, 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 he seeks out scientists uh, who, are, uh, who are sharing the same vision and he would like to promote them. Uh, and so I find that his his relationship with this coterie of technocrats, specifically with the nuclear program, is actually very close. Um, he, you know, the, the letters between Homi Bhabha and Nehru, for example, Homi Bhabha writes not as dear Prime Minister Nehru, he says, my dear Pai, right, my dear brother. Uh, so they're very, very close. Like you can see the intimacy um, in, in their relationship. They really get along so well. Uh, their visions align. And so it's just this, this just, uh, it's really beautiful to read those letters, frankly. I was bringing a smile on my face. Uh, but uh, to get back to your question, the relationship is very, very positive. But it seems that, uh, that, that Nehru always wanted to nurture a group of scientists who shared his vision of, of economic development through big science. And, and nuclear being a key component of that big science made nuclear uh, technocrats very attractive to him, and I'll give you one example from the book. I was just looking it up before our uh, uh, our conversation. Is that the first uh, meeting uh, between the Indian Atomic Energy Commission with a foreign partner, which was the French, um, actually took place uh, in the Ministry of External Affairs in New Delhi, but in the in the, in the Prime Minister's room, and. Um, as far as the, and it was just, you know, there was Nehru present, there was uh, Homi Bhava, K.S. Krishnan, S.S. Patnagar, and then Frederick Julio Curie, who was representing uh, the French Atomic Energy Commission. And it did lead to the first foreign partnership. Um, and so all of this to say that very positive, I think I'm just uh, 
giving more evidence, but essentially saying the same thing, that uh, it was a very positive relationship, but not by accident, but by, by design, because this was what Nehru wanted to do. There are these sort of two strands or two themes that run throughout the book, right, um, which is about uh, building the nuclear program, uh, securing India's kind of territorial sovereignty, right? And, and you know, you stop and think about, you know, the nuclear program, obviously it has civilian uses, but at the end of the day, it is, you know, the, the most destructive kind of weapon, you know, that, that man has invented. Um, you write that, you know, at the heart of the Indian nation state, there's a myth there's a myth of a peaceful country that's built on the sort of Gandhian tradition of nonviolence. And, and you write that, look, this myth ignores the territorial character of the Indian nation state and the intrinsic violence that sort of, you know, makes territoriality real, right? Um, and, and what I found interesting in your book is that you said, look, th this myth has been perpetuated generation by, by generation, and it's actually had a real impact on today's political narrative in India. I wonder if you could just help us kind of understand, you know, what is the impact of this myth or the perpetuation of this myth? Yeah, um, um, when when I when I was writing the that part of the book about this myth of peaceful India, what I was really thinking about is that you know in the late nineteen nineties, early two thousands, there was this big debate um, within international relations in Washington, I think in the United States, and also in India about whether India had strategic culture or not. And then um, some of us remember that having had to read that in college. Uh, and then there was this understanding that, yes, India has a strategic culture, but it is essentially Nehruvian. It's not really, uh, it's, it's, it, it doesn't have characteristics of, of real politique. That is something that is more recent that's happened in the 1990s onwards. So in the, pre in the present moment of that debate itself, because that, that was the underlying argument. And so and as a historian, when I just went and looked into the archives, I, I, I was obviously... Uh, I was aligning with those who said India has strategic culture, every country does. Uh, but the, the character of that strategic culture, this whole idea that throughout the Cold War, or say, you know, throughout the first uh, 50 years since formal decolonization, India was not really thinking geopolitically, or leaders were not thinking geopolitically. That's something that only happened uh, in the 1990s. And th that's something that I wanted to debunk uh, because the evidence just did not add up. Uh, but, you know, if somebody were, if if, 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 there, if somebody had written a book that person had not grown up in India, which is my case, I grew up there, uh, that person might just say, of course, a country has a strategic culture. Of course, the leaders think geopolitically. That is a no-brainer. Um, I mean, I think if we, if we think about, you know, patterns and try to generalize, then it makes sense that, you know, countries have strategic culture, whatever that looks like, and that geo obviously leaders will have to think geopolitically uh, to an extent. Uh, but, uh, but because the force of that strategic culture debate uh, uh, was so strong, and it had effects in terms of scholarship as to this kind of a shift that people uh, tend to decipher, especially in the social sciences, the political science and IR, um, that there was a shift, uh, sh a certain shift. And, and in, internally with domestic politics, there was a shift that there was, you know, there were there were more elections that were being won by Hindu nationalist parties, uh, unlike previously. Although I do discuss 
in my book this moment when there was a non-Congress government after the emergency, but that non-Congress government of Morarchy decide does not really take a different position than Indira Gandhi's government before and after. Uh, so the, the, this discussion about you know the myth of peaceful India was essentially um, me trying to you know debunk myths I learned in college uh, through archives, uh, saying that yes, leaders thought geopolitically. Here is all the evidence. Think about China. Thinking about territoriality uh, with the nuclear program. You know, you write that the anti-nonproliferation position uh, that leaders of the nuclear program held, you know, it was neither moralistic nor ideological, right? Uh, you write that it, it resulted from the, the, the their pursuit of freedom of action, right? It was a pragmatic path. Uh, and uh, you, you, you have this line where you say the deliberate ambiguity afforded by the expansion of the nuclear program allowed its leaders plausible deniability. Uh, and so, you know, I was reading these passages and thinking, you know, how did India get away with it, right? In a sense, they managed to kind of play all sides against each other. Tell us a little bit about, you know, how they managed to kind of carve out this niche that allowed them to develop this program outside of the existing regime. Of course, much later through the U.S.-India civil nuclear deal, they managed to get certain exceptions, you know, written into this regime. But, but tell us about the earlier period. I, I have a section in my book where, where I where I discuss that Indian policymakers who are, you know, in taking on the non-proliferation regime, if you will, and they have this very clear position of opposing the regime, um, have their own identity as being that they are they're not exactly proliferators. They are rather policy um, innovators. And what does that mean? Is that you know India as a country had participated in the negotiation of the treaty that uh, became the non-proliferation treaty, uh, but did not sign it because it went against um, various kinds of, uh, I would say, interests. And there is some some discussion I have that the NPT did not really satisfy uh, India's security interests. And it's something that, you know, even somebody like V.C. Trivedi raised it uh, with uh, U.S. Um, um, interlocutors, uh, because there were this uh, track two dialogue that took place in India with American Academy of Arts and Sciences folks who were essentially scientists uh, at Harvard and MIT, close to the government, who wanted to test out what India really thought about the NPT. And so there are discussions about geopolitics and security in those track two meetings that we don't hear about. Uh, so anyway, um, I, f I find that Indian, the leaders of India's nuclear program, uh, both the technocrats um, and the diplomats who are representing India, places like Geneva and New York, um, really don't think that they are opposed to the regime or anything. They, they, they are, they're carving a space that makes most sense to them in terms of freedom of action of their country as they see it. Um, now, your question is, how did they get away with it, right? Uh, how did they get away with it? I think it has to do with, you know, the Cold War politics to a large extent. Uh, and that is... Um, the, the, the U.S. government really wanted India on its own side. Uh, India was this non-communist democratic government that was a counterweight to China. Um, but some U.S. governments were more willing to put up with India's freedom of action than others. So I would say the Kennedy administration was far more willing to tolerate and was sitting down and talking to Nehru, which changed radically after, after Kennedy's assassination. And Johnson had a very different take. Um, so, but but because India was this was this country that was that was that was not aligned on either side, but had you know maintained 
strong relations with the Soviet Union as well. I mean, the 71, prior to the 71 treaty, uh, that, that made Indian policymakers able to negotiate with multiple parties uh, because uh, it was created this possibility that, ooh, if we don't listen to the Indian policymakers now, they might just go to Moscow. Um, and then Moscow felt sometimes the same way. Uh, so I think the, the the structure of the Cold War also created various opportunities that Indian policymakers were able to uh, make use of um, and, and serve their own ends. And by own ends, I mean freedom of action for the country, um, which is, you know, the view from New Delhi versus the view from Washington, D.C. They're very different, I guess. We can all agree. Hey, Grant the Masha listeners. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Putting this show together each week is a labor of love, but it takes a lot of work to put out a great show every week. If you'd like to support the work we do at Grant the Masha, please visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcasting platform, so you'll be the first to know when a new episode rolls out. Uh, it just reminded me of the current period we're in, right, where we see uh, this new doctrine the, the external affairs minister likes to call multi-alignment, right, where, again, we see sort of India managing to navigate uh, this sort of tightrope walk where, you know, there's been a, a Russian invasion of Ukraine, India has not unequivocally condemned it, but yet has managed to somehow still uh, maintain, if not enhance, its ties with countries of the West, not least the United States, you know, countries of the European Union and so on and so forth. I want to ask you about one of those countries, which is France, right? And France looms very large in your story. Um, it was a very early partner for India in pursuing its nuclear endeavors, right? And, and there was a sense that, look, in the context of U.S.-led kind of controls and, and censorship and nuclear issues, um, the French sensed an opening to really work with uh, their counterparts in India, right? And, 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 and as an American, what I found so interesting is that you see the United States repeatedly kind of getting in its own way in a manner that hindered the the, the full blossoming of, of closer U.S.-India ties, right? So U.S. export controls, they hampered tech transfer, that, that opened the door for France. The U.S. insisted on conditionality. It wanted to trade access to atomic earths for food aid, later back down from that. But, but you know, U.S. imports of rare earths were slow walked, right? But and only expedited once uh, once the United States learned that China was receiving materials from India, right? So a series of sort of circumstances that show that the U.S. you know struggled to kind of get out uh, out of its own shadow. Tell us a little bit about the factors that explained. I don't know if you want to call it hesitancy or concern, but 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 these were concerns that the French were 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 not burdened with. Yeah. Um, so I think the question is, what's happening? What was happening in the United States? Why, why weren't U.S. policymakers just getting it? Um, and I think uh, you know uh, there are a host of factors, and the host of factors can explain, I think, U.S. policy, U.S. foreign policy towards countries that are in between, like India, that are not directly an ally. Um, and so there, there is there most, more, more negotiations need to be done, uh, you know, than the Congress, for example. Uh, and that's something that, we, that I, I saw very clearly, the food aid, uh, right? Um, the, the, the executive was, was not really opposed to, uh, to providing food aid to India. That's the Truman administration. 
And then the, the Congress backed um, just would not back it because India is uh, has sitting on uh, strategic materials that should be belong should be belonging to the United States under its stockpiling act, but it's not. And it it has a famine, and it's still uh, it's 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 basically the the position is why is India so poor and so proud at the same time, right? And this I'm talking about the 1950s. I mean, this is the kind of uh, you know that I. I think I have probably at least one Harblock cartoon in the book where, she, where it shows that India is famine struck and then the U.S. Congress is saying that, you know, there's nothing for free. Uh, you really need to make up your mind. Uh, so I think the, the, the issue with the U.S. Congress is something that uh, certainly uh, had an effect in terms of early U.S. foreign policy towards India, like in the early Cold War era. And so the, the atomic earth specifically gets quote-unquote resolved when the Eisenhower administration says we are just going to deal with it um, secretively with this one-on-one -on -one meetings that William Pauley is going to have, who had Second World War experience in Asia, both China and India. So he was, you know, building these planes, the Flying Tigers. And so William Pauley was, uh, was, was somebody who Indian policymakers already were familiar with. And so they, they had these negotiations and it was sort of resolved, uh, resolved in a way that India will not send any more thorium nitrate to the PRC. Uh, so I think the problem within the United States is that uh, the, the U.S. Congress is definitely going to be always unwilling to help a country that is not a clear ally. And that will always lead to these negotiations. Uh, and sometimes uh, the U.S. government will find they should just have to shoot themselves in the foot because it's so complicated to get stuff done. I mean, you you live in D.C. I mean, this is Beltway talk. Like, why, why am I even saying this? But I see the evidence in the archives in the 1950s uh, very clearly. Um, the other is that I find, you know, as we get, as we get closer to the 60s and 70s, um, U.S. policymakers are very aware that India has good reasons to develop nuclear weapons uh, because of nuclear weapons development by China. And it might be very difficult to, uh, to really reverse it once that happens. So what should we do? And it seems that, th th this is what was striking, that I wasn't expecting it. I find that more or less uh, unanimously, most U.S. policymakers, Kennedy and Johnson, thought that uh, India is trying to develop nuclear weapons because of prestige, uh, because it just wants to show that it also has nuclear weapons in Asia competing with China. The whole geopolitical anxieties of Indian policymakers, which are quite valid because this is, you know, in the 60s, so there has been a war with China already. It was just striking to me that uh, that that U.S. policymakers were unable to, or unable, perhaps unwilling, I'm not quite sure, to 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 grapple with the possibility that perhaps Indian leaders may have some geopolitical concerns. But that, that was just missing, which was probably also has to do with, you know, how. Uh, how foreign policy goals are envisioned, that if it's an ally or an adversary of the United States, geopolitics makes a lot of sense uh, because, you know, it's, it's very clear in, in the equation. But if it's a non-ally, you just don't know what to do with it. So it's probably prestige, maybe domestic politics. We don't really know, can't say. They're confused. Uh, so I, I find that very striking, this, 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 uh, this unwillingness to accept geopolitics as a possibility. You know, you, you know when you're talking about the Indian nuclear program that there's a kind of entrenched idea, right, in the literature of a kind of linear trajectory in the development of nuclear technology, right? So you, you first produce fissile mater material, you then develop explosive devices, you test those devices, 
you you work towards the miniaturization of those weapons you finally acquire delivery vehicles uh but one of the things that comes through in your story and you say this explicitly is that india didn't follow this kind of linear path at all right and, and i guess my question to you is did it not follow this path as 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 a product of 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 kind of strategy or was it opportunism how do you explain this kind of non-linear trajectory that india followed yeah i i think that's a terrific question and it's really really important to reflect on uh you know why india pursued nuclear weapons and energy in such a complex unique way and i think the answer is a little bit of both uh so was it was it strategic or was it just you know uh was it just circumstances i think there was a the combination because uh, export controls for example uh was something that you know it existed early on but it became more comprehensive after india's uh, first nuclear explosion of 1974 the nuclear suppliers group and and then the suppliers group becoming bigger uh but it was it was uh, it it was possible to acquire certain kinds of technologies more than others in in the 50s and 60s so for example india uh had a, a plutonium reprocessing plant that it built on its own uh but uh, it got got a blueprint from a us company vitro international and vitro international is the one that's also responsible for you know plut- purex plutonium reprocessing in hanford uh so it was like in the 50s it was super high tech and and was and and got uh, gave the blue or sold the blueprints to the indian atomic energy commission now now as the atomic uh marketplace as i call it after um eisenhower's atoms for peace as it expanded certain kinds of know-how were easy to get than others uh and so 60s and 70s things were becoming l- more restrictive so 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 what i'm trying to get at is that uh, it's india's nuclear program you know expanded and made certain choices responding to the global atomic marketplace so certain technologies became available and the atomic energy commission and homi bhava during this time said yeah we we definitely want that plutonium reprocessing plant and then we also have uh this research reactor which is called the cyrus you know we, we all we all know about cyrus from canada which produces plutonium so we can have this sort of a, a fissile material available that would not be safeguarded because it is not uh it is produced by india it's, it's it belongs to india right uh so so that there are certain choices the certain technopolitical choices that the leaders of india's nuclear program were able to make because of how the marketplace was structured yeah i want to just kind of push you a little bit on the 74 nuclear tests right because uh, one of the predominant arguments in the literature is that look indira gandhi authorized these tests in order to really shore up her domestic position i mean you know she was ruling at a time of tremendous and mounting political economic turmoil of course the emergency uh would uh kick in just a year later you know that the real story though uh once you scratch uh the surface is far more complex right so uh, my question to you is you know if not straight up domestic politics what was it that was driving mrs gandhi to okay test at this particular juncture in time yeah i um i i discuss in the book that that the war of 1971 is is really important 
Um, and then I spent a chapter discussing it. And some people have asked me, like, why did I spend so much time discussing the war? Because I, 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 I'm very interested. Uh, I was very interested in showing to my readers that how this war, which ended in India's military victory and was rather a short war of you know 30 days, uh, actually uh, was also the reason where, where Indian leaders, especially the Gandhi government, felt that uh, its borders were not really secure. Uh, and this was also uh, the decision to keep the war quite short and constrained to make sure it doesn't really spill over in, in, in rather unstable parts of India, whether it's India's Northeast or whether it's in that Naxalite, West Bengal. Um, and so the, the her decision to, to conduct the nuclear test were in 1972, when one would imagine, and I think this has come up in the literature the early literature on India's nuclear uh, explosion of '74, that you know, wh why why did she have to do the test? There had there was already a war that India won. Uh, Pakistan lost territory with the creation of Bangladesh. This is uh, this is a good position to be in. Well, outcome wise, yes, but the processes were such that it only exacerbated tension. And what would happen? What would have happened if the war had gone on? Uh, and there were so many threads of that conflict that were still underway. There was, it was just, you know, the war was rather ended abruptly. It was, it was a military victory and that was it, but it was also a civil war within that area. So I find that, and that's why the technopolitics and territoriality come, kind of come together for me uh, in terms of the after effects of the war. Uh, and, so, um, and so I find that, you know, her decision to conduct the nuclear explosion was was not essentially domestic politics. It just does look like that, right? Because she, if we follow her trajectory within India, we find that, you know, throughout the 70s, or yeah, I would say like late, late 60s, 70s, she had been consolidating power increasingly. She has been re reducing powers of, say, you know, uh, the, the, the privy purses of the princess and, and, and anybody who challenged her power uh, you know, uh, was basically uh, had to face some form of legal consequences because she was very good at mobilizing law uh, to 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 take care of her uh, her adversary. So I think domestic politics is an attractive explanation. That's that's why it's so also quite prominent. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, but when but we really all need to connect to that. There, there were some broader visions in terms of India's place in South Asia because the seventy one war also saw. You know, Soviet submarines and uh, the Seventh Fleet in the Bay of Bengal. Like that's not that hadn't happened before. Um, so there was a, there was the, this broader Cold War dimension. So there was, it was a Cold War, and so I I would I consider that the war within a war. And I think I may have written it in the footnote. If I didn't, I should have. Um, so I find that this is it's really important to understand that you know, seventy one war was not just a thirteen day military victory of India. It was more complicated. Uh, but I, I understand why domestic politics is so attractive as an explanation and has been so because she has been she had been, uh, pardon me, um, uh, consolidating her power within the government, within the domestic politics for several years before that. I, I want to sort of, you know, bring the, the story a bit to, to, to more recent times. You know, in the epilogue to the book, you write, um, you have this great line where you say, India's nuclear program is made up of dreams, hopes, and promises. It's a largely a, a program of potential. Nuclear energy officially meets only 3.2% of the country's share of electricity production, end quote. Um, and so, I, you know, this is kind of a big question, but I'll, but I'll ask it to you anyway. What's happened in the decades since your narrative ends? 
that has sort of stymied India's ability to fully ad- obtain, fully attain this potential that you write about? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I get this, you know, uh, this question quite a lot as to, you know, build a story up to the recent time. And, you know, if, if you go onto the IAEA's website and look up uh, how much does uh, countries that have nuclear reactors, uh, you know, draw uh, their electricity from, from nuclear sources, we find it's the same number. Uh, I probably changed like 3.3, maybe. Uh, I checked it last week. Uh, but it's it's really the same. And it's 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 so, it's it hasn't really changed, uh, no matter uh, what has happened in terms of whether it's the, the nuclear deal, whether it's been, you know, uh, NCAs or nuclear cooperation agreements with the French or the Russians. Uh, it really has not really, the number hasn't changed. Uh, so I think that uh, what we... Uh, those of us, and including yourself, who are familiar with, you know, what the kind of discussion that has been uh, within within India about non-proliferation regime preventing India's nuclear energy expansion, I, th- I think that the bigger story is that it's really hard for any country to expand on nuclear energy without uh, state support. And uh, as a consequence, you know, there were only two countries that drew uh, large amounts of uh, electricity from nuclear power, France, huge amount of state subsidy, and pre-Fukushima Japan. Uh, I mean, even, even the United States. I mean, um, my second project has a huge U.S. angle. And so, you know, I, I hear a lot about, uh, hear a lot from U.S. companies about, you know, how uh, the, co- the companies are suffering, and they've been suffering even before Three Mile Island, right? It's 1979. Uh, so there's a story about the presence of the state in nuclear energy, because nuclear energy is not uh, cheap. It's not too cheap to meter, as we were made to believe by Lewis Strauss back in the 50s, unless there is huge amount of state subsidies. And when that's not possible, it's really hard for any country to draw a lot of uh, electricity from nuclear power. Uh, and so I think that it's really a sto- story of the presence of the state, how much is possible. Um, and But then the non-proliferation regime is what we hear more about, uh, because rightfully so, um, India was not able to uh, participate in civilian nuclear trade. I mean, this is not something that one can ever disagree. That's a fact. But if India were able to, I think and in terms of numbers, it would still not change anytime soon because of there needs to be adequate state support. And not adequate, more than adequate. It needs a lot of money. Um, big science, right? So I, th- I think that's what's going on. Uh, that's, that's, that's my position on you know, nuclear energy and India. India, Indian policymakers were given the option to join the nuclear suppliers group, which I discussed in the book in the 70s. Um, but it, uh, rightfully so, Indian leaders felt that this was the nuclear NSG membership was going to be non-proliferation from the back door. And this is a quote that I have from the archives and uh, the National Archives of India. Uh, so I think this, th- th- I think there is more to be said about non-proliferation regime and India's freedom of action as opposed to non-proliferation regime and 3.2% of electricity. That that, that, that would be my take. So, uh, Jyotha, I want to kind of bring this conversation to a a close by asking a little bit about the research process, right? Um, In in the very end of the book, you you say, you know, freedom of action uh, of the leaders of India's nuclear program uh, that act freedom that they enjoyed has transformed it into an anti dissent machine is the is the phrase you use in other words 
you know, the culture that's developed around the nuclear program, it, 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 it rejects oversight. It's allergic to oversight. It, it's perpetually suspicious of independent inquiries of people asking tough questions, right? Um, in your own experience, you know, how has this impacted the scholarship of India's nuclear affairs? Yeah, I, I think it's an excellent question to, you know, wrap up our conversation with because I because we can discuss a few things that will help future scholarship. Um, I think one of the one of the chief outcomes is that um, the fact that we tend to think more about the five nuclear tests of 1998 more than the 74 tests is, is basically an example where uh, where, where, where whatever the leaders of India's nuclear program wanted us to believe, we did it, right? Because that was that was a peaceful nuclear explosion of '74. That's that that's the official position. And 1998 is India went nuclear. And uh, this is 2023. This is going to be 25 years of 1998 tests. And you know we're never going to hear about '74 uh, in any of those conversations. Uh, if they do, I'd be delighted. Uh, so I think one of the effects is that it's uh, that that India was this uh, was is this is this indignant actor, rightful indignant actor, and the non-proliferation rate is unfair, and uh, and India was did something peaceful, and then it went nuclear. So all of that basically, you know, coming back to the original conversation about strategic culture debate and considering the Cold War era to be Nehruvian, Nehruvian equated with non-real politique. So all of that we see in the literature. I mean, any any uh, social science book we pick up on India's nuclear program basically says that you know it's 1998 test, nuclear weapon test. Uh, so I think that's it. Certainly has an effect that we don't we, th- that th- those narratives have not been questioned. But with that said, I think there is there is quite a lot of opportunity uh, because of the archives, and I think that's where. You know, my original, not original, my first degree was in political science. And so I really drank a lot of the Kool-Aid myself uh, because that's what my textbook said um, and what my professor said. And then the archives were, it just opened my mind. So I think because of the presence of the archives, uh, now students and scholars can just go and draw their own conclusions. And I think that's something that I found very helpful. The reason I travel so much for the book, um, I think there are like a lot of archives. It also took me a, a while to finish writing as a consequence is because I felt when I was doing interviews, I was hearing the same narratives repeated to me over and over again, whether it was in Mumbai, whether it was in, in New Delhi, it was the same thing. And I felt that I was learning absolutely nothing in the interview. So you don't, you don't, you don't see a lot of interviews in my book uh, and deliberately. So I scrapped them. I didn't use them. Uh, I just went and, you know, did a lot of archives connecting the U.S. ones to the French ones with the, with the fortunately, the, the Delhi ones, too. So I was really able to triangulate data, which I never imagined, you know, 12, 15 years ago I was able to do. Um, so I think archives is something that future scholars should really double down on and, uh, and uh, challenge the narratives with evidence. My guest on the show this week is the scholar Joyita Sarkar. Her new book is called Plowshares and Swords, India's Nuclear Program in the Global Cold War. It's a fascinating look at a global story of India's nuclear program and its evolution. Uh, it's been published by Cornell University Press. And I just want to say to all of our listeners out there, it is available via Cornell Open Access. So you can go online, download it, uh, read it at your own leisure. 
um, which really uh, is is quite a testament because it really does open it up to all kinds of uh, uh, scholars and students. Um, thank you so much for taking the time and congrats on the book. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Grant Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindustan Times. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help others find the show. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Cliff Jayapranada is our executive producer. Production assistance comes from Nitya Love. Thanks for listening, and see you next week. This was a Hindustan Times production, brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.